Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. Are you ready to study the scriptures, yes or no? Good, let's do it. As you know, everybody, it is Christmas time, and Christmas time is wonderful. I love Christmas time. I love the lights. I love the trees. I love, the, I love all of it. And what I really love is the Christmas music. Every year, I look forward to the time when I can listen to Christmas music, which, by the way, in case you're not aware, is on Friday after Thanksgiving. There are people that listen to Christmas music at other points before Thanksgiving. They are wrong. There's people who think that you can listen to Christmas music whenever you want. They are weird. It happens the Friday after Thanksgiving, then you can listen to Christmas music. It's interesting, though, every year as I come back into it and I start listening to these old tunes that we kind of grew up on, these tunes that are kind of magical and warm and you enjoy every year, when you really peel back the layers of Christmas music, it's all kinds of wrong. Christmas music is messed up if you think about it. You don't believe me? I want you to think about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer essentially has some kind of wild birth defect, right? That's essentially what's going on here. And so as he's growing up, he is made fun of. He is laughed at. He is ridiculed. He's not allowed to play any of the reindeer games. And so really, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is a story about bullying. That's what it is. It's bullying. So they treat him terribly until the moment that they need him for something. So they use and abuse him. It's a mess. You don't believe me? All right, don't get me started on Baby, It's Cold Outside. I don't even want to talk about this song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Listen, here's the thing. That girl need to go home. Get up and go home. You don't, don't be here anymore. Get up and go home. If you got to say, hey, what's in this drink? You need to leave. Okay, you just, you just got to go. Shouldn't even be there. That dude's a punk. Run, run away. How about, how about the old classic, uh, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus? Oh, how adorable. I love that. Oh, really? Well, that kid that witnessed that event, what he's thinking now is, oh, for Christmas, I'm going to get my parents divorced. That's what he's thinking. While you're having a good time kissing under the mistletoe, that kid thinks you're splitting up. He's traumatized. It's the worst Christmas ever. My point is, is that as you start to peel back the layers a little bit, even of the Christmas story, not everything is always as it seems. We all know that if we're not careful, we can kind of miss the true reason for the Christmas season, right? We know that. We know that there's a, a lot of commercialism that surrounds the season. And if we're not careful, what happens is, we let all that commercialism kind of take over. So what you do is you basically have, you have a, a little bit of, you get a lot of Christmas with a little bit of Jesus thrown in, right? Because I got to go to the parties. I got to decorate. I got to bake. Oh, the baking. I got to do all these things. And at the end, you kind of go, oh, right. And, and this is about Jesus too. And that shouldn't be the way that this is. Why? Because we're talking about the incarnation theological word, just meaning God came down to be with us, Emmanuel. Like one of the most beautiful and important aspects of our faith is what we're celebrating. God stepped into our world. And so as you peer into the story each year, you've got the usual cast of characters, right? You've got Mary. Mary, she's the chosen one. She's the one that was chosen to carry the Christ child. You've got Joseph. 
in the story, Joseph's trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do? What am I going to do with this woman that I'm betrothed to? But she's pregnant. What does that mean for our life and our future? You've got the baby Jesus. The baby Jesus and the... Oh, no, that's not right. That, no. You know, uh, the team, I'm, so, I'm sorry. You guys, I'm sorry. I apologize for that. That's another cute baby that's happening in our culture right now. Don't worry about that. There's another, yeah, that's better. Although I got to say, probably the ethnicity on this pic is all wrong. But, but it'll give us at least a little, bit, a little bit of a picture of what we're talking about. Jesus, the focal point of the whole story. And what we do is we hold these people up. Mary, Joseph, incredible examples of faith and heroism. I promise you when they were going through it, they felt nothing like that. They hated, this was not a glorious moment for them as they were going through all they were going through. But we hold them up. I can never be like that. And then there's people on the outskirts of the story. You've got shepherds. You've got wise men. You've got some other people on the outskirts. And I wonder if sometimes we relate more to them. You kind of think, I'm not a Mary. I'm not a Joseph. But a stinky shepherd, yeah, that's me. Like, I can relate to that. I don't feel like I'm at the middle of this story of God. And I understand that. But I want you to know that actually you are. That actually God has set his focus on you. That he set his gaze on you. That he has pointed his love at you. And so you are in the middle of the story because God has chosen you. But you don't always feel like it. You feel like you're on the outskirts. So for those of us that resonate with that, there's a prophecy in Micah that I think is really interesting. And, and what happened, this, this prophecy, you'll see bits and pieces of it in the New Testament as you're reading through it in the Christmas story. But it's fun to read it where it lays. Here in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, David's country, the runt of the litter. This is in the message version in case you hadn't picked up on that. The runt of the litter. I was the youngest of three. And then after divorce and remarriage, the youngest of six. I understand the runt of the litter. The runt of the litter, from you will come the leader who will shepherd rule Israel. He'll be no upstart, no pretender. His family tree is ancient and distinguished. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But it says Jesus is going to come from Bethlehem, the runt. That's where he's headed from. From the runt, from the outsider will come the shepherd ruler of Israel. And another translation says, Bethlehem is too little to be among the clans of Judah. Oh, you're cute little guy. God chose the runt to be the place where his son, his rescue plan would start. And that gives you a picture of what God thinks about people who feel like they're on the outside. God chooses them. So if you feel like you don't fit, if you feel like you don't belong, this is for you. God chose the runt of the litter for the birth of his son, the Messiah. So we're going to look at this group of people on the outskirts today of the story. And we're going to start with the wise men. Starting in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, He's kind of changing that prophecy a little bit. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Everybody say, liar. After they, oh, that was really good. After 
they had, uh, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen went. It rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I want you to think about these wise men, these magi for just a moment. Because when we think about them, we usually think about them when we picture something kind of like these guys up here. We think about, you know, three, three guys. This is how our nativity scenes show them anyway. Like three, this is where we get the song, We Three Kings. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gift we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain. Where are you? I don't even know. I'm saying Christmas carols by myself. Where's your Christmas cheer? Oh, star of wonder. We don't have time. Thank you. That was good, though. You sound good. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> you got three kings from the Orient wearing turbans. They're riding camels, horses on their way and bringing Jesus some sweet gifts. And we kind of sterilize the story a little bit. We make it real neat and tidy. In fact, some scholars think that they didn't even have to travel that far. Some scholars actually think this right here. They think that wise men actually just sent gifts using free prime shipping. <laughs> As they studied the original language, that was terrible, I'm sorry, I apologize for that. That, was, that should not have been done. In reality, the truth is about these guys, we don't know much about them. You know, we, probably, they, they weren't kings, probably. They're more like, they're more like uh, religious advisors to royalty. Magi can refer to magicians or astronomers, maybe experts in interpreting dreams and other strange happenings and things like that in the world. But most likely these guys were learned religious men. Right? They were men of faith that would have been acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. But they were also astronomers, men of science, studying the stars. And I think that's such a beautiful picture. These men of faith and men of science together. I think that's important. And Matthew just says that they came from the east. Some scholars will say from Babylon, maybe the area of Iran. And they're coming because there's been an expectation that has circulated in the first century that a ruler would arise from Judea. Like they, they knew about this. And they know about this through the prophecies from the Jewish community in their homeland. For example, they would probably know Balaam's prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, which says, A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. So at the heart of many of the predictions about the coming Messiah that these guys would actually know, there's predictions that his rule is going to bring God's peace God's justice to the entire world, not just to the Jews, but to everybody. And so they set out to find him. And they set out by trying to follow a star. Can you just imagine in that time following a star to get there? Some say it was probably a natural phenomenon that you could trace back to an astronomical event at the time. In other words, that God set up the way that the galaxy rotated for an astronomical event to happen just at the time where his son was born so that they could go find him and worship him. I think that's such a cool idea. They say it could have been a comet. Maybe it was a supernova, a conjunction of two planets coming together. Jupiter at the time was kind of known as a perhaps a royal or a kingly planet. And Saturn was sometimes thought to represent the Jews. In some cases, so the conclusion, if that was true, would be obvious. 
that a new king of the Jews was about to be born as those planets aligned. And as astronomers actually do think that around 7 BC, those planets were aligned about three times. Isn't that interesting? Well, I thought so anyway. Then others say that the star was probably just an astral phenomenon. In other words, God just put a star there and he moved it around to tell people where he wanted them to go. Still others think that it could have been an angel that they were following. We know that there's angels through the Christmas story, that Mary and to Joseph and to the shepherds, and oftentimes angels are referred to as stars. And so, so it could just be an angel that they were following to get where they needed to go. But the truth is we just don't know. And then our nativity scenes say, oh, they showed up at the manger and they gave their gifts. And it's a beautiful scene that looks so nice on our coffee tables. I hate to ruin that scene for you, but they probably weren't there. If you're going to go home and be mad, I hate the commercialism of Christmas, ruining everything. Smash your wise men. You don't need to do that. But they probably weren't there. That was a long journey they were on. And a lot of scholars think that Jesus was probably two years old and they found him where he was living. And when they came, they brought him gifts. Why? So that they could worship him. So just listen, these guys, they would have spent time away from their families, giving up the comforts of home for this journey. And we don't know much about them, but we know that they were doing that, just trying to follow a star. So what was it that drove these guys, men of wealth and influence, to to start this journey? The goal's clear in Matthew chapter 2. We just read it. They said, the wise men, they came to worship him. That was the goal, that was the mission, Mission. that was the intent, that was the purpose. That's what they were after. So we don't know much about them, we don't know much about the journey, but what we do know for sure is that outsiders, probably Gentiles, were the first, some of the first to come and recognize and worship Jesus. These men that traveled from afar, they came to worship Jesus. Outsiders were invited to come, and Matthew includes it so that you know outsiders are always welcome. This is not just for the Jewish people. This is for everybody. Jesus is born king of the Jews, but his rescue plan extends to the entire world. And this is no small detail, everybody. Christmas is for everyone. Christmas matters for everybody. And so they find themselves in the middle of this political intrigue then after meeting up with Herod and being sent out by him. Why? Because Herod considered himself to be the king of the Jews at the time. Now, if you know about Herod, he's uh, he's a problem. You know a little bit about Herod. He did some incredible things during his lifetime. Colossal building projects in the area. Like if I could just have the time to describe to you what he did. It's phenomenal. And he renovated the second temple in Jerusalem. He expanded the Temple Mount. He built this fortress in Masada. He built the Herodium. But along with a bunch of accomplishments, he was also a paranoid, self-absorbed tyrant. Who, by the way, executed his own wife because he was afraid that she was conspiring against him and then executed his three sons and another wife and I believe his mother-in-law because he thought they were conspiring against him. So when the scripture says Herod was disturbed, he was a disturbing guy. He's a bad guy. He's got no desire to worship Jesus. He's lying. The only thing he wants is to retain his title, to retain his power. There's no journey for him. There's no gift for him. There's no worship for him. He just wants things for himself. Everybody, how easy it is to point the finger at Herod and go, oh, I would never. And yet we travel through the Christmas season thinking like that. Like it just happens easy because we don't stop to pay attention to what God is really doing around us. But these wise men, these magi, they're driven by something else, not following Herod's commands to go find the baby. No, what they're doing is following another king, their hearts intent on finding and worshiping him. 
So no doubt, these guys are men of means, but they're also means of conviction. Because they're willing to give not just their time, but their possessions, their comfort, their effort, their energy to find somebody so valuable. Oh, that we would remember and journey like that through the Christmas season. And they certainly weren't driven by their wealth because when they got there, they offered the most precious gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And just really quick, I think this is so interesting because they bring these gifts and we just kind of read over them and go, Frankenstein? No, they brought gold, frankincense, (laughs) gold, frankincense, (laughs) and myrrh. And they bring this gift of gold, and gold is a royal medal. It's a kingly medal. And so the scripture, Matthew records, they present to Jesus gold. And so gold is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's right there. Then they bring frankincense, and frankincense is part of the mixture that they would use to burn incense on the altar. So priests would use incense and burn the frankincense on the altar So it's used by the priests. And so the frankincense, they present it to Jesus. And the frankincense points to the fact that Jesus is the great high priest. You don't need any other person. No other priest is required. You have direct access to the great priest. And then they would bring him myrrh. And myrrh is a sap that comes from trees in areas like India. And so they would would bring this myrrh and present it to him. And the Jews, they actually didn't practice full body embalming like we practice today. So... They would just wrap the body up and they'd pack it with stuff to try to keep the smell down. And myrrh was one of those things. And so they would pack that in the burial package. And so think about this. Myrrh points to the fact that Jesus would die, be buried, but he would rise again from the dead and pay the price for all of our sin. Like it's amazing. Gold proclaims his kingship and frankincense talks about his priesthood and then, and then myrrh, it represents his death, burial, and resurrection. And the crazy thing about this is that these wise men probably had no idea all that was happening. This is just God foreshadowing for you and for me who Jesus really is. And Matthew records the whole thing like it's mind-boggling. It blows me away. I think it's so incredible. These wise men driven not by their riches because they gave it up. Not by their treasures. For the wise men, this was personal. This mattered to them. I believe that as you read through the story, this was for them. Why do I think that? Because they just said, we just came to worship him. That's what we're doing. They weren't seeking riches. They weren't looking for power. They weren't hungry for glory. They didn't want political fame. They were seeking the Christ so that they might worship him. And what we know about people that decide they're going to go and seek God with all of their hearts is God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said, They will be found by me. I will find them. They will find me. If we'll just search for him with all of our hearts. So the truth is, we don't know much. I speculated a bunch here. Speculated a bunch about the gifts and the wise men and what they did. And that's fun. I like that. But Matthew is not at all concerned with the details of who they were because he's got a very brief account. He's not really concerned about what they brought because it's a brief account. Why? Because he's more concerned with why they brought them. And that's how I want us to close out today. Because I think there's a few things that we can all learn from the wise men as we go into this Christmas season, but also just for our lives in general. And the first one is really simple. The first one is our best gifts, our best gifts are personal. That's really simple. I know. Our best gifts are personal. In other words, your motivation and your heart behind the gifts, it matters. I think that for the wise men, this was totally personal. For the wise men, they brought these treasures, these gifts to worship him, but it was personal for them. So much of our interactions today, though, 
It's not personal. It's simply transactional. Have you ever noticed what happens when you get a really nice gift from somebody else? They get you something great, and you didn't get anything from them, so you're like, oh, <laughs> man, I, I didn't get you anything. And you're like, oh, great, now i got to go buy them something expensive. I don't have the budget for this. What am I going to do now? Right? It's just transactional. There's no feeling behind it. It's just obligation. Or you got a girlfriend, and she buys you something amazing that you love. And you went out, and you bought her a base model blender. Well, you're going to get a breakup for Christmas. <laughs> L- listen, fellas, if you need help, just come talk. We, we can talk. We can help you. I promise I can help you. But with your next girlfriend, you'll think better. <laughs> because, because you'll know better. You'll have learned something. But it's transactional. You feel this pressure, this obligation. Uh, it's not personal at all. In fact, sometimes I think we even give some stuff so that we can get something in return. Oh, I'm going to buy something a little nice. I'm going to give it to you so that you can give something back to me. We interact with people based on this expectation of reciprocity. And you know it's true because when they invite you over to dinner, you go, oh, now I have to invite them over to dinner and it's a whole thing. <laughs> reciprocity. When I was growing up, we often got socks from my parents. Uh, I, have, I have six kids in my family and so I'm the youngest and we would get socks every year. And there, there were some lean years in there for sure. And so there wasn't much around the tree, but we'd get some socks. And so by the time you go around six kids and you open up the package, oh, it's socks. Kid number two, oh, it's socks. Kid number three, oh, socks. And, and you get all the way down to six, oh, socks, right? It's, who cares? But then it became a thing, and my parents thought it was funny, and so they would buy socks. No matter what other presents they're buying, they're buying as big packages of socks. And so every year, it's like, socks, yay! And everybody's screaming and clapping and laughing, and my stepmom's like, ah, 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 ah. she's having the greatest time and thinks it's wonderful. But it didn't mean anything to us. We're like, great, where's the real stuff? Contrast that with a couple years ago, I actually um, had a friend who knew, he just knew me well, knew a lot about me, knew what I liked, knew the things that I liked. And so this friend went out and bought me an iPad Pro. That is not an inexpensive present, everybody. And so he bought me this iPad Pro. I had no idea. It's just there was a box under the tree, and my wife kind of knew about it, and she pulled it out, and she gave it to me. And I opened it up, and I was like, why did that mean so much to me? Because it was expensive. That's not why. That's not why. <laughs> Man, way to ruin the point, bro. That's right. The reason it meant so much to me, it was, it was from the heart. It was personal. It was something that I deeply loved and enjoyed. And actually, I used to preach from every single week. It was deeply meaningful. It was personal. Why? Because he just knew me well enough to buy me something that would really make a major impact on me. It's just personal. Gifts need to be personal. Those are the best ones, and you already know that's true. But we often give transactionally, like we're talking about. On our best days, we give transactionally. On our worst days, we sometimes give to, with a desire to control and manipulate other people and make them do what we want them to do. But hey, everybody, that is not how God treats us. Not by a long shot. He gave everything to us in his son, Jesus. This was personal. Jesus came for you. And he did it with no expectation of what you would give back. He just hoped you would. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God wants personal, intimate, 
close relationship with you. And he's paved the way for you to do it through his son Jesus and the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit. You can have that. And actually, Jesus reserved his harshest and angriest words for people who resorted to transactual, contractual kind of relationship, the religious leaders of his day. God is interested in our motives. He's interested in your heart. And he doesn't need your gold. And he doesn't need your stuff. He's got plenty of stuff. He's okay. But he does want us to give our gold to him and to other people. Why? Because it's good for our hearts to do so. That's why this legacy offering is important today. It's good for your heart to do it. So I just want it to be really clear. God doesn't want your stuff. He wants your heart. God doesn't want your stuff. He wants your heart. And the best gift that you can give him is the personal one. It's just you. Which means, it leads us to the second thing, which our best gifts, they come from our hearts and not from our hands. In your family, did you ever make that decision one year? We're not going to buy anything for each other this year. We're going to make all homemade presents. Have you ever done that? Yes, yeah, terrible. That's why you haven't done that. <laughs> no presents, just all homemade. And, you know, the, the reason that's terrible is a lot of us who aren't great at making things like that, we have the idea to do that. And then you end up giving, like, it's a coat hanger with some paper cups hanging off. You're like, Merry Christmas! What is that? I have no idea, but it's from right here. It's from right here for it's for you. Right here. Okay, great. I actually, in my nightstand at home, I have a little tiny trophy that my daughter Reese made me. And I forget what it said on the base, because on the base it was, it was like the movie Ant-Man. It was like world's best grandma. Like, that's what it says on it, actually. But she, she drew a little thing and said, number one dad, and she glued it on there, and she gave it to me. It is one of the most special possessions that I have. Why? Because it came directly from her heart. I didn't care about the hand-drawn part of it that was glued on. It came from the heart, and it was the most meaningful. Our best gifts come from here. We like to use our hands, though, because we have a sense that I'm in control when I use my hands. I'm in charge. I can do this. I can fix this. I can make this for you. And when we're babies, we actually, you, you see it. You start to reach out and grab stuff, whatever's near us. You're reaching, trying to, <laughs> seriously. I'm going to have a talk with the tech team later. I apologize. I apologize for that. Let's get that off there. That's what babies do. Everything I want, I want, I want to get, I want to grab it. You want to try to control your surroundings and wield whatever in your grasp. Unfortunately, for many of us, that doesn't stop until we hit the grave. I still want to reach out and grab, use my hands to control my life and circumstances. And our hands are capable of great compassion, but also great destruction. And it's your heart that determines what your hands are going to do. So your heart is the center of your life. It's the center of your destiny. It's the center of your legacy. But the truth is, the dynamic... The dynamics of that are a little more complex than even that because it really is the health of your heart that God is interested in. The health of your heart because your hands are going to do whatever is coming out of that heart. So you're going to act out of the depravity of your heart or the goodness and the health of your heart. And so our hearts need to be changed. They need to be transformed by God himself. And we cannot do that alone. That's why it's so important that we come, that we submit our lives to him so that we can bear great fruit because the reality is this is the gospel story. Left to our own devices, we do bad. We mess it up. We are incapable. 
and we bear bad fruit. But he came, he gave you everything, and he puts his good in you when you receive him, and so good can come out of your heart. So the greatest gift that any of us can receive is that gift of heart transformation. That's the greatest thing that you can get this Christmas season. To allow him to get in and work on you. To allow him deep down inside and move in those motivations and pull some of them out and drop some of his own in. And when you let him do that, it begins to affect how you treat other people. Legacy starts to happen that way. Why don't you guys come on up? We're going to close. Some of you are probably familiar with that old story. It's a, written by a guy named O. Henry. It's a classic story, and you've probably heard it in one way or another over the years. But it's a story of a, a couple named Della and Jim. And Della is a beautiful woman. She's got beautiful, cascading, knee-length hair. Like it's just the, it's the pride of her life. And everywhere she goes, people talk about it. Oh, is your hair so beautiful, so lovely. Oh, thank you so much. Her, son, her husband, Jim, he's got a pocket watch. It's a gold watch. It's a beautiful watch. It's been passed down through the generations of his family, from his grandfather to his father, and down to him. It's the pride of his life. He loves it so much. But he doesn't have a gold chain with which to wear it, and fix it to himself. So, so he's always a little disappointed because he'd love to show that off. It was a long time ago, and so they don't have a lot of money. And so Della, she decides one day, I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to go, and I'm going to sell my hair to a wig maker so they can help people in need. And so she goes to the salon, sitting there in the chair through tears. She's just praying, God, please don't let him think I'm ugly. And they cut all of her hair off, and they sell it and give her the money. She takes the money, she goes to the store, she buys a beautiful gold watch for Jim. Sorry, a beautiful gold chain for Jim. She takes it home, sits and anxiously awaits for him to come home so she can show him. Well, Jim opens up the door and he walks in. And he sees her standing there with a look of expectation on her face. And she says, Jim, Jim, I got this for you. And Jim's like, your head? What happened to your hair? I, I, I know, I know I sold it, but listen, I, I, got, I got you this. I got you the gold chain that you wanted. You'll be able to wear the watch and everybody will be able to see it. It'll be so incredible, Jim, I'm so happy. And Jim looks crestfallen and he says, but, but Della, I, I sold the watch. I sold the watch to buy you these hair combs. They're made out of tortoise shell. They've got jewels around the edges. It's really, really expensive stuff. And I bought these for you, but I sold the watch. So this couple, they've got, they've got, they've got hair combs and no hair. And a gold watch, a gold chain and no watch. And you look at this couple and go, what idiots. Is that really true, though? I think what they have is actually something much greater. Here's what the author had to say about this story. He said, Here I lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these, these two are the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest. 
Everywhere they are wisest. And then he actually says, they are the magi. They're like those magi. They gave everything. They traveled far. They gave what they could give. And really what they did is our third point. Our best gifts are sacrificial. They come when we sacrifice ourselves, when we sacrifice our lives, when we lay ourselves down on the altar of Jesus and give him everything that we've got, when we lay our time and our efforts and our energy in front of one another and we give of our time to spend time with kids and spouses and friends and share the love of Jesus with them through the season. This is the greatest when we sacrifice. Our best gifts are sacrificial. I think that's what the wise men did. They sacrificed time, energy, effort, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Why? Because they came to worship Jesus because this was personal for them. I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want to ask you all across the room, I just want you to respond to this. What is it that you need to do today to respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying? Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. See you next time.